All right. Well, many of you guys know that I, um, I talk about a lot. I take a walk in Riverside Park every day. It informs a lot of my theology, actually. I get to know the, the rhythms, you know, of the river and the animals and the plants there. Since I've done this for a few years, I've come to know that the time between about mid-May, end of June, early July, is the most precarious time to walk there because the Canadian geese have had their babies and they are there guarding those babies ferociously. So, you know, like geese, they like to eat grass and so they often are just like covering these large swaths of the park, especially over the path, and I don't want to get off the path to go around them, right, because there's like all this goose poo, not to be too crass, and it's just easier to see on the path, right? So I'm, I'm trying to stay there, but if you go anywhere close to the babies, the adult birds, they start to hiss at you and they chase you. And I've been hissed at and chased several times this year. I feel like I'm pressing my luck a little bit. But thankfully, I haven't been bit yet. I know I, I walked past another woman who was doing the opposite you know, direction of laps from me, and she was like, I just got bit by a goose. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'll try not to do that. But I did have one that kind of like made this intense eye contact and it stretched out its neck and was just honking and it was really scary. And I kept trying to tell it like, look, I, I don't mean you any harm. Like, I don't want to hurt your babies. I'm just trying to walk, but unfazed, right? And there's just this like primal parental instinct that is really fierce. So I want us to hold on to that, that picture of that like primal instinct that's really fierce and we'll come back to that. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I opened a new sermon series that we're calling Bird God, and we're interacting loosely with a book called When God Was a Bird by Mark Wallace, who's a professor of religion and environmental studies at Swarthmore. And so, you know, like with most books, I'm not sure I embrace quite all of it, but I really appreciate what he's doing, which is re-imbibing all of creation with divinity, right? And he, he's suggesting that if all of nature is filled with God, Right? If all of nature around us is filled with a sacred presence, then all of nature is deserving of respect and care. And that when we look at the trees and the plants and the birds and the rivers and the rocks and the oceans as being filled with God or at least held in God, then it's harder to mistreat them or to mismanage them and do things that harm their long-term viability. So if you, if you look at the little supplemental sheet, I've got a, a quote that he says early on. He says, the heart of my argument is that God in biblical times was encountered as a bird god, and that this encounter opens up the possibility that all things today are filled with God and thereby deserving of reverence and care. And so we are going to look at that bird god today, but I want to start out with that second part of what Wallace said, that all things are filled with God and thereby deserving of our reverence and care. Right, that all things are filled with God. And in like religious studies speak, we call this panentheism. And you certainly do not need to remember that term, but if that's helpful for some of you, panentheism is different from pantheism in that pantheism says everything is God, panentheism says everything is in God. Right, and so this idea of everything being held in God is really embedded in the New Testament in the writings of Paul. So I shortened a couple of the, the key verses there. The first one in Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him all things were created. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right? We touched on this 
The last time I preached this idea that Jesus is an incarnation of the Logos, which was there at the beginning of creation, and so we're in this mystical territory of kind of like everything is held in this spirit called the Logos. And then in Acts, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands, for in him we live and move and have our being. Right, so that idea that you know, God doesn't just dwell in buildings, which I think we all sort of instinctively know, but was actually, um, it was believed actually that the rest of the world was not that sacred for many hundreds of years in the West. And so I think we're sort of rediscovering this idea that the sacred is everywhere because everything is in God. Right, and so we're, we're in that mystical space of, of trying to just describe something that we can't fully understand, but it's just sort of been intuited by some people of faith, right? This idea that everything is connected and held together in the divine presence. You can see like from our, our, just our gathering statement and our sort of our vision statement that we gather because we are connected to each other, to ourselves, to the world around us, to the oneness of all creation. That is what this is saying. And so this idea of panentheism is embraced pretty widely in the Eastern Church, in the Eastern Orthodox, the Oriental Orthodox, it's increasingly being sort of re-embraced by some of Western Christianity as well. There's some history there that I won't get totally into, but there was some of the colonial um, thinkers in particular tried to get away from nature being infused with God because they tried to differentiate Christianity from like the different religions of the first peoples, of indigenous peoples, to justify, you know, conquering, killing, and all of those things. And so we are now at the place where we're looking at the fruit of that and saying, hmm, that didn't work out very well. And so we have all of this bad theology that we are trying to undo because it's been used to justify genocide and the destruction of the ecosystem and all these other icky outcomes. So with that said, let's go back to the first part of what Wallace said there on your sheet. God in biblical times was encountered as a bird god. And I think, well, yeah, it's true. We see God depicted as a bird right from the beginning in Genesis 1, verse 2. So you see on your sheet, in the beginning, when God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth then was welter and waste and darkness over the deep and God's breath hovering over the waters, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night. It was evening and it was morning, first day. Right, so in the Christian tradition, this, this phrase, God's breath hovering over the waters, is widely accepted to depict the Holy Spirit, who was present with the Creator and the Logos at the beginning. And the Hebrew word there used is ruah, which is both used for breath and spirit. Right, so the Spirit of God is there. Now, in the Jewish tradition, you know, they don't, our friends don't embrace God as being a trinity of persons like Christianity does, but our Jewish friends think of God as being a unity. And there are some strands of Judaism that imagine this unity hovered over the waters of Genesis in the form of a dove. Now, if we're looking at the text, we see it doesn't say that God is in the form of a dove or that breath. It doesn't even specifically mention a bird. But that's one strand of thought that's pervasive because the word there that's translated as hovering is often used for a bird that's hovering over its eggs or over its babies, right? So it has these connotations of like fluttering, like its wings sort of fluttering over, and it has connotations of brooding. It's sometimes translated in that way. 
And so in a bit of his own, what I would call midrash, Mark Wallace, he talks about, and just picture this, I loved this sentence, the glorious mother bird of creation tenderly brooding over the great egg of the cosmos in an attitude of sustained solicitation and affection. I just love that, right? God brooding over the great egg of the cosmos. So the truest tradition of God being a dove is what's believed to have influenced in the gospel writers, right, who were all Jews, as was Jesus. And so we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who knew that strand, and they seem to embrace that dove image when they describe Jesus' baptism. Right, so all four of them talk about Jesus being baptized, being in the water, and then they talk about the Holy Spirit descending on him from above like a dove, right? Just as that dove spirit hovered over the waters of creation at the beginning of all things, this is a parallel communicating that we are in a second creation story, right? That Jesus is this beginning of a new creation. So why a dove, right? I mean, doves are just, they're actually pigeons. And there's nothing that special about them. At least in our culture, we think of them as kind of a nuisance, don't we, especially in big cities, they're a little bit dirty, they're kind of gross, they're not that pretty. But the dove had a different reputation in ancient cultures. It was actually a symbol of sex and love and war. And humans who have observed pigeons notice that they have unusually strong sexual appetites. Right, so people who raise pigeons, which I am not advocating, PETA raised uh, strong concerns about that sport, but the people who do race them have noticed that they fly faster if they're allowed a bit of, shall we say, foreplay with their mate before they're released into a sort of boomerang race. So they have to fly a certain distance and then come back, but they return a little bit quicker if they're allowed to have some of that foreplay. People have also noted that, that pigeons can be fairly aggressive fighters, right? So they have strong libido, they're fighters, they're protectors of their young. In Babylonian literature, the goddess of love and war, Ishtar, is often painted with a pigeon on her arm, which I wouldn't think of as being very like, stately or, or strong, but that was the old symbol. We know Aphrodite's chariot was said to be drawn by doves. So I think if you're going to have a bird that's bringing order out of the chaos and the darkness to create a world, right? This bird that's like hovering over the vulnerable newness of it all, You'd better have a bird that is fierce and strong and a lover. We see a similar theme that's echoed in Deuteronomy, only here it's not a pigeon, but it's an eagle. So you'll see I've got Deuteronomy 32, 10 to 11 on your sheet. In a desert land, God found Jacob in a barren and howling waste. God shielded him and cared for him. God guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. Right, so Jacob's other name was Israel, and this is talking about the descendants of Israel and God being that bird that's like fluttering over the nest of these baby eaglets and then guarding them when they start to take their first tentative steps toward flying, much like we might guard our, you know, two-year-olds and three-year-olds who are taking their first, well, I guess one really when they're taking their first steps, right? And then we see in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus borrows this image of God as a parental bird as well. This is from Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings 
and you weren't willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I've often heard teachings on this verse here that talk about, you know, like when a barn catches fire that a mother hen will gather its chicks under her wings to protect them. And then when the fire comes and sweeps over them, the hen gets incinerated and the chicks survive. Which, I mean, that's, I mean, that is one interpretation, but there's no fire that's actually in the verse. Um, I think people often like that one because the mother hen dies, and so they're like, well, it's like Jesus dying for children. So maybe, right? Like, that's one interpretation. But it's also known that hens make special clucks that, like, alert their chicks that a predator is nearby, right? And so when a hen makes a certain sound, the chicks come and they know to gather under her arms. And Jesus grew up in a farming community, and I think he may well have noticed this or have known this, that these various hen clucks mean danger, right? Come close so that I can protect you. And that makes me think of those Canadian geese in the park, right? They're a little more aggressive than, say, a hen, but like hens, they're brave guardians of their young, right? They're chasing away animals like me who are bigger than them and who might pose a threat, and I think this, this Bible picture that we have here of like birds hovering over their young and protecting them under their feathers, it can sound like really majestic and noble, and I think it is that. But it also offers a picture of God who is like a courageous custodian of the vulnerable, right? And in Genesis of creation. And so to imitate God is to imitate this role. We are to be courageous custodians of creation, fiercely ferociously protecting it. The bird god of scripture is a lover, a fighter, an incubator of life, a guardian, and a protector. So we're going to revisit this picture of God hovering as a bird over its nest again here in a couple of weeks, because there are some thematic strands that run throughout the scripture along those lines. But the invitation that I want us to experience today is one where we feel the freedom to engage all of nature as being infused with God. I invite us to look around at just the birds that are around us and the different life forms and imagine them as filled with the holy, right? Not just the birds, everything. And if it's all held in and permeated with the sacred, how might it change our relationship to it? So with that, we usually take a minute or two of silent or guided meditation. And so what I'd like to invite you to do today Take a couple deep breaths, if you'd like. And let's just meditate on that picture of God as like a bird that's hovering over the egg of the cosmos and just fluttering its wings as this sort of protector incubator. And we'll just hold on to that picture, think about it for a minute or two, meditate on what it means that our God is like a bird God. And I'll let us know when the time is up.
Let me pray this over you. May the spirit who hovered over the waters when the world was created breathe into you the life that she gives. May the spirit who brooded over Mary when the eternal son came among us incubate joy and peace inside of you. May the spirit who set the church on fire upon the day of Pentecost bring the world alive with the love of the risen Jesus. And the blessing of God Almighty, the source, the wellspring, and the living water be among you and remain with you this week. Amen.